Well, one of my favorite passages, you know that uh, I usually try to have a passage in the bulletin for the offering. And one of my favorite passages to use as an offering verse is Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. You might recognize it. We've used it a couple times, I believe. It says, one man gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. These are good verses to read and to take to heart as we prepare to bring offerings to God. Uh, here is the call of God to give freely and not to withhold unduly. Uh, they contain God's call to be generous and, and to seek to refresh others uh, by our giving. And this is good for us to hear as we prepare to worship God with the gifts that we bring him each Lord's Day morning. And yet, as much as this is a, a favorite passage of mine to uh, use as an offering verse, I also have a certain concern whenever we use these verses in this way, uh, because uh, they would also seem to make uh, certain promises. Uh, in the first verse, the promises are not quite as direct but verse 24 says, one man gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. This verse seems to be more of an observation than a promise. And yet by making the observation, it would seem that the writer is at least suggesting that uh, such is what we can expect. When we give freely, we can expect to, to gain even more. When we withhold unduly, we can expect to grow poorer. And the second verse, verse 25, says even more directly, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So how do we understand this? Uh, are these verses making such promises? And, uh, and we would have to admit that, yes, at, at least... In the economy of the old of Old Testament Israel, these verses are making certain promises. The promise that generosity will be met with gain and that stinginess will be met with loss. But is this the case all the time? And does this apply to the economy, if we want to call it that, of the economy of the Christian life today? There are those, I'm sure you are aware, uh, who say that it's still the case, even today, that that you have to give in order to receive. Uh, there is a certain doctrine, if we can call it that, a, a, a doctrine of seed money. Uh, and some even take this to an extreme and say that the reason Christians are not rich, or at least gaining financial ground in their lives, is because they are not giving away enough money. God won't bless you. They say, and some even say, God can't bless you. His hands are tied until you start to give. It ought to be clearly put that indeed God calls us to be generous with the gifts that he has given us. Uh, this applies to our finances, but also to our entire lives. And it's worth reviewing the call of God to be generous, the call of God in Christ to give ourselves wholly to the good of others. This is what Christ did for us. 
He laid down his life on the cross that we might not die, but live indeed so that we would live eternally. As we heard this morning from John 3, 16, so that we would live eternally through the resurrection of the dead into a new creation. But the question then is whether the motivation of our giving ought to be the hope of gaining even more. Even if the hope of gaining even more is not so much a matter of greed, is this a right understanding of our giving to the Lord? The concern with just reading Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 without a bit of explanation is that there are too many examples of uh, in God's word and, and in the history of the church as well that, that would contradict the seeming promises of these verses. The problem with giving in order to gain even more is that it would not always seem to work that way. This is true not only of financial giving, but also more generally of faithfulness to God in, in, in one's life. On one hand, we cannot miss the fact that God promised Israel his blessing on the condition of their obedience. We cannot miss the fact that when Israel was obedient, God was faithful and blessed his people. And that when Israel was disobedient and rebelled against God, God was true to his word and withheld his blessing and even punished his people. But we need to be careful not to forward such an economy without qualification into our lives today. The fact of the matter is that Jesus himself promises us that faithfulness will often be met not with fortune, but with suffering and persecution. In John 15, verses 8 and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Reading this warning from Jesus, I think of Paul before his conversion, who, who in his supposed zeal for God went so far as to put Christians to death. But to put it more generally, Jesus himself teaches us that the way of faithfulness will often be narrow and difficult. And the thing that brings us to consider all this, you might be wondering, um, is the report that Mark gives of the death of John the Baptist. There is perhaps no better example of faithfulness being met with suffering than the example of John the Baptist. Here was a man of impeccable character. Here was a man of exceeding faithfulness. Here was a man of uncommon courage. And yet here is a man whose life and ministry ended with imprisonment and the loss of his head. Let's recall the life of John the Baptist. Dropping back to Mark 1 again, we 
We read in Mark 1, verse 6, that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. The significance of wearing clothing made of camel's hair is that it shows his extreme poverty. <clears throat> his wardrobe identified him with the Old Testament prophets, of whom he was the last. Camel's hair is stiff and coarse and is generally unusable for any purpose except to make the cheapest, most uncomfortable clothing possible. John lived in poverty like the prophets before him, and he did so in order to give himself full time to the calling of God in his ministry. Thus he also ate whatever he could legally get his hands on, namely, as verse 6 tells us, he ate locust and wild honey. But let us also recall the ministry of John the Baptist. His clothing and diet aside, John would not likely make even the long list of candidates to call as a pastor. He was too forthright with the word of God. He was too faithful. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 records that when the leaders of the people came out to hear him, he addressed them as, remember, you brood of vipers, which is to say you are all a bunch of treacherous, deadly snakes. Could I get away with that on a Sunday morning? Even the righteous leaders of the people were called upon to repent in order to avoid the acts of God, the A-X, acts of God, which was already at the root of, of every unfruitful tree, said Jesus, or, or said John, to be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's little wonder that John lived by himself in the desert. He uh, wasn't any too good at making people feel warm and comfortable in relating to God through their own righteousness. No matter where a person was in their faithfulness to God or lack thereof, John himself was always more righteous. And John was perfectly willing to point out sin and to call the people to repent. Such was his calling from God, his ministry, to call the people to consecrate themselves for the coming of God into their midst. We've said before that the ministry of John the Baptist gives testimony to the divinity of Christ even before his ministry, the ministry of Christ began. And and such was his calling from God to, to drive the people, we can look at it this way, to drive the people into despair of themselves, that they might know their need of this Christ coming into their midst, so that they would receive him as their Savior with deep humility. But consider then the passage before us this evening in order that we might recall the death of John the Baptist. Could there be, I suppose there could, but I was going to say, could there be a more undignified death than getting caught up in the petty bitterness of an adulterous man and woman and a promiscuous daughter? Verse 18 makes it clear that John's call to repentance went out even to King Herod which didn't seem to bother Herod that much, but his wife was a different matter. 
Herod's wife wanted John silenced and out of the way once and for all. And ironically, Herod himself had been keeping her from having her way. But then came a night of carousing in the house of Herod and of, uh, of all the people. The daughter of Herod's wife came in to dance promiscuously before the crowd. And of all the people, Herod was pleased by the lewd behavior of his stepdaughter. And he made to her what surely must have been a, a promise of drunken and sexually charged recklessness. Whatever you ask, I will give you, he said, up to half my kingdom. And her request, of course, in, in consultation with her mother, was the head of John the Baptist. The closing words of this passage in verse 29 are filled with anticlimax. Mark records that on hearing of this, John's disciples came, took up his body, laid it in a tomb. The end. Thus endeth the life and ministry of the great John the Baptist. It leaves us, does it not, with a kind of pallid silence. After a faithful ministry, after a life of suffering, what is the reward of John the Baptist? His head on a platter and the, the quiet disposal of his body without any honor or recognition. The world just moved on. Herod still with his brother's wife, his wife with her gloating satisfaction. She had finally gotten her way. And the guests nursing their hangovers the next morning. And can we necessarily expect something different? There are counterexamples, of course. Take, for example, our Lord himself, whose, whose faithfulness, meant his own death, but also his resurrection and our salvation. But what will our reward be for faithfulness? We might stand up for what is right at work, only to get fired and to see the company go merrily on its way uh, to even greater profits. Uh, we might confront wrongdoing in a, in a crowd and, and find ourselves ostracized while, while everyone else seems so happy and comfortable with the status quo. We might operate our business honestly while our competitor is a liar and a cheat. And yet he succeeds more than we do and his business grows. So how do we overcome the temptation to, uh, to leave faithfulness behind how do we overcome the, the temptation to seek that path of least resistance in life? Well, we do so by recalling several things. Firstly, let us keep in mind and never fail to recall that God is the judge of faithfulness. According to the standards of this world, it's just plain foolish to risk your well-being by standing up for what's right. But consider what would have made John the Baptist willing to charge a king with adultery. Kings do whatever they want. Kings put to death those who question their decisions and actions. So why would John the Baptist be so reckless as to say to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife? 
Well, he did so because of his conviction that God is the judge of faithfulness. Herod had the power and the authority to, to put him to death. But that didn't change the fact that adultery is wrong. That didn't change the fact that John's calling was to be faithful. Secondly, let us keep in mind and never fail to recall that the kingdom of God seems always slow but steady as it comes. When suffering comes as the result of our faithfulness, we might be tempted to ask despairingly, but where is the kingdom of God? Where is justice? Where is righteousness? Where, where is my reward? But consider that Mark records John's death right after he records the disciples being sent out by Jesus to preach. Twelve new ministers of God's word are now on the scene. The work of John the Baptist was done. But the, the work of preaching the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ was only just beginning. The kingdom of God comes like a slow-moving train. We all know what that's like in Terre Haute. The kingdom of God moves like the tectonic plates on the bottom of the ocean. Slowly. And at times it would seem imperceptible. But it is coming. And it is moving by the sovereign will of an eternal God. And thirdly, let us keep in mind and never fail to recall that our reward is in heaven. Which is not to say that we earn heaven by our faithfulness. It is simply to say that heaven is waiting for us as the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our reward in heaven is the reward that Christ earned and shares with us. Both Jesus and Paul hold out heaven as a reward in order to spur us on to be faithful. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says, blessed are you. What a thing to say. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul writes to the young minister, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul assures Timothy, as he assures us, that that crown will be awarded to all those who have loved his appearing. Some Christian traditions have, uh, have such a fixed gaze upon heaven that uh, due attention is not given to this world. But our weakness, I believe, is that we do not look to heaven enough. We might even justify our unfaithfulness by thinking to ourselves, well, uh, I got to live here, don't I? I mean, 
God surely doesn't want me to be so uncomfortable in this world. Surely God uh, would, uh, wouldn't expect me not to fit in this world. And so perhaps for the sake of reformed world engagement, we avoid the difficulty that Jesus promised us. We avoid it by hedging our faithfulness to God. Pretty soon we start interpreting God's word to say exactly the opposite of what it says. Or to put it in Paul's words, pretty soon we refuse to put up with sound doctrine and start gathering around us a great number of teachers to say what our itching ears want to hear. Instead, let us remember the, the promise of Scripture that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That persecution uh, is going to vary from day to day, from season to season within our lives. But let us keep our hopes set upon Christ and our eyes set upon the skies for his return. Ever look at the sky in that way? Ever see clouds floating across the sky and wonder if Jesus himself might be behind the next one. That's how we are called to live. Enduring whatever suffering we might be called to endure. But putting faithfulness first as we look to Christ and anticipate that great day when we will see him face to face, and when we will be brought to him, to be with him, even for all eternity. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, as strange as it may sound, we thank you, O God, for this rather gruesome account of the death of John the Baptist, we might uh, wonder why it's here, why Mark takes this slight detour in telling the story of Jesus to give us the account of the end of John the Baptist, his life on earth and his ministry here. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we thank you for the reminder that as we are faithful, hopefully just approaching, the faithfulness of John the Baptist, but as we are, are faithful as, as John was, that there will be persecution for us, but that you will always be caring for us. You will always be leading and guiding us. Nothing is happening outside of your will and your plan for us. And regardless of what happens, come what may, we have, promise and the hope of heaven. There is far more in store for us than we could ever gain or lose in this short life. Help us to always keep this perspective on our lives and help us always to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.